out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest, as, as we do. Um, so this week, it is going to be the turn of girls' school, because I recently spoke to the guitarist, Jackie Chambers to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the interview. You'll find out lots more during it, so I won't bore you with um, some sort of introduction. Heaven forbid. Anyway, look, so um, yes, after several minutes of casual chat, that gets edited out. We got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Jackie, tell us more. Tell us now. Also, without spoiling too much, we are the same age, 1964. Or the same year, so um, there was a bit of, bit of that going on as we um, enter into this next conversation. Jackie, over to you. Well, at 13, I was really influenced, like I said, by the punk scene. I think I like the energy and the enthusiasm, and they're just the I don't know, I think at that point, I think you thought anybody can do this, whereas before there were all the I don't know, prog rock bands and the really technical bands that came through. I suppose you Deep Purple's Led Zeppelin's. I liked those bands, but not back then, if you know what I mean. Um, I, I kind of got into them later on. But I just thought, you know, it's too complicated and too nice. And when punk came along, there was the energy and there was the grit and there was the anger and the frustration that most people were feeling. And I thought I really got into that. And um, I kind of always realised I wanted to be in a band, but I didn't really pick up a guitar until I was 17. Right. Which is which is almost at that age, you think, God, if I haven't started now, I might as well just not yeah, bother, which yeah. is quite strange, really, isn't it? But were you interested? I mean, because my earliest memories were listening to probably Radio 2 that my mum had on and, and all that kind of <laughs> soft, soft music from that period, soft rock or whatever it was. Easy listening, that was probably it, wasn't it? Jimmy Young in the <laughs> afternoon. And then it was like those early top of the pops moments of, of <laughs> sort of seeing people like Alice Cooper and Sweet and, oh, yeah. and then, you know, Gary Glitter. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and getting very excited. So there was, I suppose that was my early, one of my earliest memories of music and being transfixed by Top of the Pops on a Thursday. Mm. Oh, yeah, I remember being uh, ready for Top of the Pops with a video recorder, the old ones where you press down, play and record at the same time. <laughs> ready for all the things I liked in 1980, I think that was. Oh, yes, absolutely. I used to love it. Yeah. And the top, uh, the top 40 on a Sunday night, ready there to record and to hoping the DJ shut up so I could get it all. <laughs> I know that was quite that was quite a uh, I wouldn't say yes it was kind of a religious experience on a Sunday. So what was your first <laughs> single and first albums? Funnily enough, um, you just mentioned him, but Gary Glitter was one of the first things I bought. I loved a bit of glam rock, and I was massive, massive Alice Cooper fan. I've, I've always been a massive Alice Cooper fan. Even now, I just rush out and buy everything he, he brings out. I love him. Um, yeah, don't. Yes. Uh, I just loved those music. So that kind of, um, it was rock, obviously, still back then. But I just liked, I don't know, I like his humour. I like the way he writes things. It's not just straight, is it? It's, <laughs> he brings a lot of fun into the music, doesn't he, I think? Well, I remember when he did uh, Schools Out, and, and that was 73, and being like, oh, my mm. God, that, that was the most rebellious thing. But interestingly enough, yeah. I had a, a brother who was older than me, about seven years old, and he had all these kind of prog rock records. And I, I must admit, I got quite into them. And, and when punk hit, I was a bit too young for punk, and it was kind of more, it was the 80s, and then I started getting into that kind of world that it was probably indie pop. And I suppose, 
is more post-punk stuff than than real punk. But then I went back and listened to the punk stuff. So yeah, um, yeah. So so during that time, you obviously because being in Leeds, yeah, you're right. There was the goth scene with Sisters of Mercy, and then you had Bradford mm. down the road, and then you had an awful lot of anarchist types and squats, mm. Squatland in Leeds. So were you, you know, because like there were bands like Chumbawamba and all those. Yeah. So were you kind of influenced by or interested in the sort of the, that lefty? anarchist world at all in goth or it wasn't really about anything political back then for me I think just because as a young person I just like the energy of the music I mean you're always rebellious when you're a teenager anyway that's the idea isn't it yes absolutely (laughs) and music is a kind of vent a way of getting things out so I always just wanted to be a songwriter really I never wanted to play guitar I mean the only reason I picked up a guitar at 17 was so that I could actually write songs yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know, the rest just happened and by default, really, because I just wanted to write songs. So I got a guitar and started and then I couldn't realise I couldn't sing and play them at the same time because I just started. Found a friend to sing along as I played the song to him. And it just happened from there. And because it was punk rock back then, it was so easy to do, you know, just one bit of you only had to know one card which I did for the first gig and just moved it up and down look it was F so I just moved it up and down just sang a load of rubbish as you do (laughs) and shouted and screamed and the energy of the music just you know was punk rock really and it just took off from there so I just listened to I like the energy of the music as long as I could sing along to something a chorus I could grab along and sing along to I loved the music Yes. So any kind of music I can listen to pop music I'd you know some good good songs in pop music Yes, I've never been. I've never been snobby about that. Really, I've always yeah. thought. Yes, I, I still think ABBA created amazing. Oh, fantastic <laughs> band! One of the, one of the best songwriting teams ever, I'd say, indisputably. Yes, lyrically, well, yeah. lyrically as well as musically. Musically, yeah. Yes, the way it, they do the way they do the harmonies for me is astounding. I love ABBA. <laughs> so during the eighties, did was this when you began forming bands and sort of trying to create a sound that was a kind of um, yes, you thought we're in a band. Yeah. This is it. Yeah, yeah. That, like I said, when I picked up that guitar two weeks later, I think I did my first gig after two weeks of playing. I mean, it was shocking. If I look back now, it was pretty terrible. One chord and lots of effects, basically. But my brother picked up bass at the same time, so we were all equally as bad. So yeah, it was just the energy, and I think, um, uh, yeah, I think that was what would I be? Well, that would be about 1980. I think that would be if I was 17. Yeah, roughly. Yes. Cause around Le- them because Leeds had the I think it was a, a venue called the Duchess and, and oh Brad- yeah and Bradford had the one in 12 club so there was quite a lot of gigs going on and like you said there was people like Sisters of Mercy and then there's a poet called Jules as well from Bradford oh I remember yeah I so, remember so there was a lot of kind of music and people forming and there was obviously the kind of like that independent record label scene and uh, you know distribution and things like John Peel so were you thinking at that stage being in the band was what you wanted to do for the rest of your life yeah, I think so. Yeah, I couldn't really see anything past that. I think I was always, I took lots of jobs, but never had a career in mind, if you know what I mean. It was like, I think when I was at school, because um, I was a tomboy and I was really physically fit, I was really good at sport. I wanted to be a policewoman or in the army. <laughs> of course, then, you know, I, I went in the army for six weeks when I was 18, absolutely hated it. So I got out. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think you don't know what you want to do. And I just never knew what I wanted to do other than music. So realistically i was very very fortunate i just took a lot of other bit jobs as i used to call them to buy amps to buy guitars as soon as as i bought my guitar or amp whatever i bought i left the job because back then in the 80s as you know there were more options you could probably swap around jobs back then 
Just yes. bit, job, bit jobs, as I call them. And there was also things like Job Seekers Allowance or Enterprise Allowance, which gave people, quite a yeah. lot of people yeah. were sort of able to sort of have that one year, I think it was Enterprise Allowance, where they'd be able to sign on for a year, almost self-employed yeah. and say, I'm going to be an artist, gardener, musician. And, and, the, and the government were like, well, that's fantastic. We, we can take you off the unemployment figures and make it look that's a bit right. better. So that was quite they do handy. That now. They do that now with w, uh, WTC, working tax credit, don't they? <laughs> oh, do they? Yes, God, get, you, get you off the statistics. <laughs> it's all about that, isn't it? So when, would you, when did you sort of go, in, when, did, when did you have your first kind of studio kind of experience of trying to record a, um, a single? I think my first, the Parasites, uh, when I was in Pudsey back in the early 80s, I think it was, um, the first band, punk band, Par- the Parasites, great name, especially in the newspapers, the Parasites are here, frightening every, <laughs> every old lady to death, I think. <laughs> but yeah, I think we went to um, a studio in Rotherham, as I remember it, um, to record a few songs. Um, yeah, so that must have been about 1980, the Parasites. Yes. And when did you, because with a lot of people who I've interviewed, they normally have a sort of a five-year narrative in their musical career. Yeah. They, you know, they get in a band after about 12 months, 18, you know, they might have created something that's quite interesting. And I suppose a lot of bands got a John Peel play, which kind of gives mm-hmm. you that sort of elevated up a bit. And so the first album and then obviously the second album, a bit tricky. So so you obviously were sort of, you're plugging away because you, you've been through yeah. quite a lot of bands and sort of before girls' school, which was kind of the turn of the millennium. So, so what happened? happened between the 80s and then the 90s well the deja, deja vu was the, probably the one that most people would know me for in leeds because uh, we did okay i think i went down to london with deja vu because we had a lot of interest um myself and my boyfriend at the time and andrew watkins who sadly passed away two years ago but um we went down to london because we had a lot of record companies wouldn't come up to leeds to see us we had to go down there to play which we thought was yeah whatever yes. <laughs> but we uh, eventually went down there and just i think WEA, I think, at the time were very interested in us. And um, I don't know, it just things just didn't develop as we wanted them to in London. It's like a little fish in a big pool down there, really, isn't it? Yes. Whereas we were quite well known in Leeds. But it just didn't happen, of course, me and Andy Split and lots of other things went on. Um, yeah, so I just kept bashing away in different bands in London. I think I eventually went to live in London because I put an advert in Melody Maker. Nice. When that was around. <laughs> and uh, I got like 68, 69 ads and like two of them were in Bradford and the rest were London. So I thought, okay, I have to go to London. And I auditioned for a few bands and I, d- I didn't really like many of them, to be honest. So eventually I got Deja Vu to move down there, but it was kind of we missed the boat, as they say, really. Yes. It's and um, cool. then... Bleach, another band which I formed with my then husband, um, and then Virago, which was a band that was um, originally started with a manager who approached me and said, I like you playing, when he saw me in a, in a covers band, <laughs> of all things, playing like chic songs, funky songs and stuff like that. But he said, I like you playing, I'd like to put you in a, a band around you. Uh, he found a singer who was called Emma, from, uh, and she was from Morecambe, and of course, um, that sort of took off in a way. But then we kind of uh, left the manager and just me and the singer went on our own and formed Virago. We got interest from a, a couple of labels again, but just nothing really, really happened. Yes. And all that all, and throughout this time, were you sort of continually kind of improving in sort of, you know, perfecting your craft on the guitar? I guess so. Yeah. But I still never saw myself as a guitarist. You know what I mean? It was like. I'm in a band. I, I never see this virtuoso guitar as a 
something to reach because I don't think you need to be the best guitarist in the world to write songs. I think if you haven't got a good song, what's the point? Yes. So I, I concentrated more on the art of um, writing songs. Yes, absolutely. I love to write, I love to write a riff. You know, it's I love to come up with a good guitar riff. So obviously I, I think I improved my playing more when I joined a covers band because I had to learn more diverse music. I'd be learning chic songs, then I'd learn something like Robbie Williams, then I'd be learning, I don't know, something, a rock song that I'd never learned before. So I'd be learning lots of different styles of music. And I think that's what pushed my playing more than anything. Yes. So, Though I didn't want to really be in a covers band, it was just a way of um, earning some money. It was an all-girl covers band, so that was my venture into all-girl world. Oh, nice. And, um, yeah, and then, of course, uh, Kim put an advert in Melody Maker, another one, in 1990, I forgot, 95, I think it was 94, 95, something like that, when I was in a band. Uh, and, um, oh, no, I'd put another advert in, that's right, because I just... Bleach had um, just split, and she answered the advert because she wanted to do something as a side project. So she answered the advert, and she lived in Clapham, whereas I lived in Tooting then, so it wasn't that far away. And we, she said, oh, she was in another covers band as well as, uh, and she wanted another project besides because girls still weren't that busy at that time. And we met up that night. We got on really well. I mean, just like house on fire. And um, we just started writing together. So she used to come around to my house. I had a little eight-track studio, and we used to write songs. But a lot of times, we just used to get drunk, so <laughs> we didn't really do much. Yes. At that, at that time, I met the rest of the girls' school because I was going all to, to all their parties and going out to the pub with them and all that. And I got on really well with everybody. And Kelly Johnson, who was back in the band then, 94, she just about had enough. So she said to me, if you take over from me... It'd be great I can leave and the band can carry on. I was like, well, yeah, but I can't play guitar. I can't play guitar like you. I can't play lead solos. I've never played the lead solo in my life. <laughs> so that's when I joined the covers band. I remember that because that was a sequence. So I joined the covers band to get my playing up to par. So yes. I could actually really learn. Oh, my alarm keeps going off. <laughs> Just tell me, guys. Um, yeah, so I joined the covers band to learn to play properly and then... She kept saying to me, oh, go on, just you got to join. And then Chris Bernacci literally lived two streets away from me, which is amazing, isn't it? Like the, we used to call it the girls' school triangle. Yes. I, I was in Tooting. Chris was in Tooting. Uh, Denise was in Mitcham. Kelly was in Mitcham. And Kim was in uh, Clapham. So we were so close to each other. So, um, yeah, so we, I used to go around at Kelly's and Denise's. And Kelly said, well, if I teach you the songs you need to learn and Chris said if I teach you the other ones will you do it I went okay so I knuckled down and and about Chris used to teach me the guitar parts Kelly did and I just went away and practiced and practiced and practiced until my fingers were bleeding and um, then apparently in 1999 they got a few uh, gigs which they wanted me to do and I was like I'm not doing whacking as my first gig. There's no way <laughs> I am doing whacking as my first gig. You're talking about thousands of people. I've got to step into Kelly Johnson's shoes, never having played lead guitar on stage before. And I went, no. So anyway, she decided to do that as her last gig, and I took over from there. Yes, because you, you were incredibly prolific as, as different bands, because you were also in a di another band, weren't you, a lead guitarist of um, Satyrian? Oh, no, that's Satyrian now. So, yeah, so I put Citeria together in two thousand, end of 2015. Right. Mainly, mainly because girls' school were gigging, but we weren't gigging as much as I wanted. And because I wrote a lot of songs, you know, we, we were all songwriters in girls' school, so they didn't all get used. I mean, 
I'm one of the songwriters in girls' school, obviously, but we, um, I had a lot of songs I wanted to play which weren't suitable for girls' school. So I decided to put a band together as well as girls' school and um, gig in between the gap in the gaps. So unfortunately, in 2015, I found a couple of members, but then we went on tour with Motorhead. So I had to wait until 2016 to really make it start again. Yes. So yeah, we did uh, we did other albums. Um, we've done two albums now. We just released one this year. Unbelievable! God, yeah. what timing! Yeah. So so yeah. obviously we're girl school because my my first memory of them was kind of the Motorhead moment, wasn't it? So um, I suppose most people's are really, isn't it? Please don't touch. Mm. So, so that must have been quite strange. Suddenly thinking, God, you're now in the band <laughs> that you probably saw on top of the pops all those decades ago. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. When I met them, you know, I'd not. I did know who they were, sort of, but I wasn't really a massive fan, if, you, if that's the word to work, use, really. I mean, I, I, my brother had the single, but I'd obviously stuck with punk at that point in the in the early 80s. So, obviously, when I met Kim, she gave me all the albums, and I listened to them. I loved them. So, yeah, so I hung, I'm hanging out with them and listening to all the music. I caught up, as it were. <laughs> yeah, because how does that... Because it must be quite strange, sort of... I, I always remember, I suppose it was... Person who comes to mind is Stevie Nicks, bizarrely, and she—I remember her saying that she never felt like she was really the. She always felt like a bit of a, a trespasser in Fleetwood Mac. And you think, well, I don't, you know, you've been in there since '74, but even though there had been the history of the band in the '60s and various members had all sort of come and gone, and you know, the Fleetwood Mac story is a classic, really. So she always, yeah. you know, felt like everyone looked at her still as as a newcomer, even though you think Stevie, but you you're such a member of the band. But did you ever have that kind of feeling of like I'm still a bit of a I've just been invited. I'm not really a member, or, or has that kind of passed now? Yeah, I guess. I mean, '94 when I first met them, it's like the band weren't really doing much, so it's more like a bit of fun, you know. I never really took it that seriously, really. I never thought it's oh, this is a really famous band in in the eighties. Um, until we started really recording and going on tour, that's when I really felt like I was a part of the band because I was part of the songwriting team. Before that, it was just me and my mates, you know, because Kim and Denise were my mates, and of course Kelly was a, a really close friend. So of course we were um, writing together, and that felt like I was part of the team. But I'm still a new girl, and I've been in the band 21 years. I know because <laughs> the it's band's quite... been together 42 years, so I have been in the band now half of the band's life. I know, and it is quite strange because I know that you know with Motorhead, um, everyone always has a look at that sort of the classic, the, the original. Yeah. Well, not quite the original, but you know, pretty much the original yeah. lineup of the the Fast Eddie and uh, Filthy Taylor. So, so it's kind of interesting that um, yeah. people do hang in there. But then, Girls' School is probably a bit different as well because. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Every every band has a different narrative, really, doesn't it? And like you said, I mean, there's probably people who do say that you know they prefer the original lineup, but that's fine because everybody, you know, it doesn't matter to me because <laughs> I love the original lineup too. Did but, you? I mean, when you were started to record new material with Girls School, did that sort of feel like a, a more of a bonding experience than just going out on the road? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, Believe was my first full album. I'd done a couple of tracks, obviously, with uh, Not um, not That Innocent, 21st Anniversary. But, yeah, to write songs, that's, like I said, that is my passion. Yes. So to knuckle down and do a whole album, which was great for me, because I was living with Kelly at the time. So, you know, it's amazing, really, when you think. It's like such a little bubble we are in girls' school. <laughs> it's like this little girls' school bubble. Enid had come round for a couple of hours, then Kim had come round for a couple of hours, and we sit down, we're doing stuff. Kelly would be downstairs coming up with cups of tea. <laughs> so it's kind of like, you know, and I used to play Kelly everything and say, what do you reckon to this one? Do you think this is 
all right. And she'd she give me good critique, you know. She'd say, yeah, I think that works. Yeah, that's a girl's school song. So you know, it was always still in. She was always still in the family, even when she'd left the band. So it's kind of weird, really. I suppose that's unusual. I suppose it's very... there was never any competition there. There was never any jealousy there. It's always been because we were all such good friends. It was great fun. Because actually, I mean, it's one of the great levelers in life. As we all get much, as we get older, you have to sort of. You're not the same as you are when you're teens and twenties. Yeah. And Kelly died, didn't she? And sort of quite, yes, in 2007. And, and that must have been a shock when you found out that she was ill. Oh, it's horrible. Because obviously, I was living with her for those those years, and. Um, yeah, it was a horrible time, really horrible time. But um, we always just we all just bonded together at that time. We all came together like a little family, as you do. We were her family, really. Yes, and and, uh, and that and that often changes dynamics so yeah. much because sometimes you hang on to really <laughs> trivial little things, and then something <laughs> something comes along, you think. Actually, I'm not that bothered about the little trivial thing that Absolutely. happened 10 years ago. So, As we said to her, the, the Legacy album was kind of for her in a way. It's almost um, a tribute to Kelly. A lot of the songs on that Legacy album I wrote for her, um, about her, should I say. Yes. And one of the songs, um, Other Side, uh, the second song on the album, I think, I actually wrote with her in mind, and I was going to the hospice every day, and I took the guitar down one day and I played it to her. And she said, oh, yeah, that's brilliant, because it's about her. She knew she was going to die at that point, so it was yes. a different dynamic, as you say. And I said, we want you on the album, so you've got to do something on the album. So are you going to sing uh, in response? So I was going, I'll meet you on the other side. I'll meet you on the other And she'd sing, I'll greet you from the other side. Because, you know, she had a yeah. joke about her death, as it were, and we were talking about Colin Fry. <laughs> I'll see you on the other side. I'll come through Colin Fry. You know, that <laughs> we were being really silly with the lyrics. And she thought she was going to get out of there and, uh, and sing. Yes. But unfortunately, that never happened. So in order to get her on the album, um, I did something that most people would think was very odd. <laughs> but I, um, uh, I got her, she left me her ashes to distribute between her friends. So I took the ashes and I said, we're going to use her ashes as percussion. So a ghostly appearance from Kelly Johnson, as I called it. And instead of a guest appearance, a ghostly appearance. Wow. And we shook her ashes. Um, we did it on the first song. Uh, in the middle, there was a little in, uh, little bit there. It didn't fit in the other side, but we put it on the first song. And um, we just shook her ashes. Of course, I asked her parents permission um but kelly would have loved it and her dad peter he said yeah she'd have loved that do it do it yes i got a few strange looks from journalists when i told him that but i thought she's i told her i promised her she was going to be on the album so her ashes were the percussion (laughs) well yes well we will have to you know you have to process (laughs) deal with these things don't you it's kind of you know and you never know how you're going to be until it happens and you're Mm -hmm. that person so it's difficult so when you did your in the summer you did a, a tribute gig yeah. in Soho I mean that must have been such an emotional moment because obviously because oh, really, yeah. when someone knows that they've got something you think oh hope fingers crossed it's better and they, oh no it's not going to get better you have that process and then mm. the moment happens when you get the phone call probably and then you think oh god it's over they you know they've passed away so it's often you know one's got so many mixed emotions at that kind yeah, of point because because on one level you think the struggle's over but then you know, it's like, God, they've actually gone. And that is kind of such a sort of humbling moment because you think, mm. they've really, they, you know, I'm not going to hear that live voice anymore. They're not going to be able to just say hi. So that is a kind of a strange yeah. one. So with the with the band, did it become much more of a tighter unit with the, 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 the remaining members? 
Yeah, I mean, we were always tight, really. I mean, myself, Kim and uh, Denise were like three sisters. Enid was always on the outside a little bit, but the three of us and Kelly, we were all like sisters. So, I mean, that very week, I was with Kelly when she died. I, I was holding her hand when she died. But when we went that weekend, we had two gigs in Germany, which were probably the two hardest gigs I've ever done in my life. Because <laughs> it was so hard to, you know, just go and do a gig and be happy and smiley and get on stage and perform. But I just went with the attitude of, OK, I'm doing this for you, Kelly. And every song I was kind of singing it and playing it in her honour, as it were, really, as a tribute. Um, yeah, so that's how I had to deal with it, really. Yes. And, of course, we'd written songs about her and we performed one of those songs, which was really, it was emotional, yeah, very emotional indeed. It must have been amazing. So did, uh, you know, because obviously you, you sort of, Motorhead often sort of keeps coming back in the band's narratives and you 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 supported them on it. At least one occasion? Oh, no, loads. Oh, I can't count how many occasions. Loads of festivals, of course. Yes. And at least three whole tours. So that's like 20 gig date tours. And that must... right, right to the end, because we were on tour with uh, Motorhead and Saxon when Lemmy went. Was that in Germany? Yeah, we were um, out on tour in Europe at the time. And we broke for Christmas because we went right through to December the 12th. Then we were going to go back for Christmas home and come back out in January to continue in Scandinavia, I think. So we finished off in Germany, I think, and then we went home and that was when we heard. It's over. It was turned. Yeah, because he's always, I remember, you know, listening to a lot of Lemmy interviews and he's often talked about how amazing girls' school, you know, are and were. I mean, it must felt really... You know, to have somebody like, you know, him sort of giving you that kind of like, you know, co- I suppose it's kind of like confidence, isn't it? That actually we are the real business. But you yeah. probably don't need anybody to tell you, but to sort of have a, a legend like that who... who Absolutely, kind of, yeah. You know, who's out there at the front. He was, always... it was amazing. It's like a big brother, really. We saw him as a big brother. I'd send him silly texts all the time, especially when I were in Stoke, because <laughs> that's where it's from. I used to send him all silly texts and he'd send me daft ones back. Just keep in touch like that when he lived in L.A., of course. Yes. And, and again, when he was on the... Uh, I mean, he supported us all the time. He'd always step up and help us out, you know. Um, on our anniversary album, I, I sent him a text saying, Lemmy, will you be on the album? We need you to play. And he sent me a text back going, what do you want? Bass, guitar, harmonica, vocals or triangle? <laughs> and I thought, of course, I've been drunk. I went, oh, triangle, just triangle, nothing else. <laughs> So there's a little, you know, backwards and forwards. And eventually did. He put the bass, the vocals, and he put triangle on the end of the album. Nice. So a song called Don't Talk To Me, which is on uh, Legacy again, uh, he came back with the triangle part as well. So right at the very end of the album, that's Lemmy on triangle. <laughs> Fantastic. Great but, sense of humour. Yes. And um, I know he was hugely influenced by the wit that was John Lennon oh, as yeah. well. So, um, But also you've worked with other amazing artists like the German singer Doro, which mm-hmm. what was that like to work with somebody who was such a legend as well? Oh, she's great. I mean, she's great fun. In fact, it's funny because we always have a laugh at when we see each other because um, people get us two mixed up because of the hair and the clothes. <laughs> I was stood at a party once chatting to Doro, uh, a motorhead party, of course. We were backstage and we we're chatting away and this guy came up to me and asked for her autograph. <laughs> and she just laughed and walked away. Well, God, thank you. <laughs> and it's happened to her as well. I've been out playing at Wacken one year and she was hanging out backstage. And she came up to me, she goes, Jackie, I've just been asked for your autograph. 
Excellent. Because it's the... the hair. I mean, we stand next to each other. We don't really look like each other. But because we're both blonde and levers, I think people just think, you know, that's, oh, that's Doro, or that's Jack, uh, you know, that's Jack's. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so it's, happened a few, it's happened a few times. And also, I mean, what I was always kind of curious, what would you say to an 18-year-old self starting out in the world that is rock and roll and music? I'd say only do this if you love doing it and just do it from the heart. Never do it for money or for any other reason because that's just, that's just not a way to do it. No. Enjoy, enjoy yourself. Enjoy the music. That's what it's about. Yes, because actually you have really, you know, gone through four decades yourself of playing in bands. So that's mm. quite, you've really given, because the one thing that I, I sort of realise with, with the sort of music world that I've found doing these interviews is that there are there is a kind of a fashion of different bands and and trying not to be part of that kind of a scene that was possibly a punk scene or indie scene or grunge scene is quite tricky because if you Mm. are one of those bands and then the scene moves you're sort of like going oh no what do we do next and often it's Mm. like well might as well split up really unless you (laughs) can do it so you know girls school has done really well to sort of keep going throughout all that time and and a bit like motorhead i know that lemmy often talked about the german audience being their saviors really oh yeah because out of when everyone else wasn't bothered you know the german audience would be there sort of buying all the merchandise and coming to the gigs always yeah hugely (laughs) grateful and every band i've ever spoke to say god you've got to you know europe and germany are like the lifeblood of our band otherwise we would just be we'd have had to retire by now and get other jobs so that that is in it's itself true. quite so an, such an amazing thing. So, you know, longevity and just keeping going must be quite interesting because your last album came out five years ago, Girls' yeah. School. I mean, and then, you know, do you have plans of... <laughs> Funny you should say that because we're in lockdown now. I was like, yes, finally an opportunity to do some writing. Because yes. I've been, I've been on the tour, for, well, basically a year I've been on tour because when Girls' School aren't gigging, I'm constantly gigging with Citeria. So I've literally had no breather whatsoever. As soon as when this uh, when this lockdown happened, I was actually on tour with Citeria. Just finished girls' school on the thirtieth, and on the first, I started with Citeria. It was literally one day go home, change the clothes, get some clean ones, and go back out again with yes. a different band because I just love doing this, and I think that's what keeps bands going. If you love doing what you're doing, right. and uh, yeah, music we've got we've got to write, and of course we're all now at home thinking, swapping ideas. I'm I'm sending Kim some uh, riffs and things like that, see what she likes. Then we put it together with Tracy as well, because we're all obviously can't get together. No. I mean the way the band writes music anyway. I used to because I have like a little home studio. I usually write the music, send it. I used to send it to Kim and Enid, and they put some lyrics to it, and then we go in and record it. So uh, we'll probably do roughly the same thing this time, only because we've got this little bit of time, it's been a godsend in some ways because it means we can write music. In fact, next year, you you watch, there'll be all these concept albums, all these <laughs> band, all these albums out, there'll be swamped. <laughs> all these bands right now are home writing songs. Yes, because I was doing an interview, actually it was with... Actually, he's in more of the country world. Hank Wangford, who's been, oh, yeah, who's yeah. good, and he was um, yeah, a rock and roll GP. It was an amazing story, because um, as his profession, he was a GP. But he'd have people like Graham Parsons and Keith Richards come and see him, and I thought, wow, that's amazing. That's how he got to know them. But he was saying that at the moment, he's having problems, feeling kind of motivated to create something and you know thinking oh god I've been often thinking I just need some time to write something (laughs) and now I've got it and it's actually not quite so easy how are you finding it emotionally oh I find it a lot easier because I think I think there's so much to write about I mean we've got so so much new scope to write about and um, 
I love, I mean, I just love writing anyway. I think that's maybe an advantage for me. But I spend a lot of time, I, I've been in, uh, into meditation for the last five or six years. And I think that keeps me more grounded than anything else. It keeps me peaceful. So my mind is peaceful. As a, I don't have the fear that a lot of people are, are struggling with right now. Yes. And I think the isolation, because I like meditation, that's given me a grounding for isolation because I like my own company. I can be with myself and not find it hard at all. In fact, really, my life's not changed that much, to be honest, apart from not being out on tour on stage. I actually like the isolation. I kind of like being at home alone and, and finding more time to meditate, finding more time to be creative Yes. And has that, um, and when, because you were into martial arts, how did you find meditation? I mean, when did that sort of come into your... About five years ago, I think I've always wanted to meditate, um, but never could actually quite do it right, if you know what I mean. And my mind wanders off everywhere. It still does. But I've learned the art of bringing my mind peacefully back. So when it wanders off somewhere and I'm making the tea or what am I going to have for dinner, I just gently talk to myself and bring myself back to that peace Yes. Whereas before I could never do that. It was always off with a, I'm quite hyperactive. So that was really a hard thing to do. But it's practice. It's like everything. Whatever you're learning, you need to practice. It's like every muscle you need to bring it back. The mind is the same. You just need to train it to come back and peacefully bring yourself back to that place. Yes. You've got to practice. It's always about mm. practice, isn't it? I mean, because that was one thing that I always noticed when I listened to Lemmy, that he was very self-contained. He didn't really, he seemed to really enjoy his own company and sit mm. there with his book. And he just, loves a book. He loved a book. And not. Yeah. And, and I realised with a lot of bands and musicians, they've got that, they're not going to survive long because they're just always busy and they're always, they're kind of chatting all the time and they're kind of obviously, you know, they're not very comfortable with themselves. So they always need mm. something to be happening. And you're thinking... God, that's going to be quite hard work, especially for people on the road with you. <laughs> I think that is, it is, it's the saving grace. I mean, for girls' school, we're very fortunate that we have our own rooms in the hotels, whereas yes. a lot of bands share. With Citeria, we share. But with girls' school, that was the stipulation. We'd rather go out for less money and have our own rooms. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of, it's just that time alone. I think everyone needs that. I think you have to love yourself in order to love other people. Yes. You know, if you're going to help other people anyway, you need to be strong yourself. It's not good if you jump into a, a, a river to help someone drowning and you're not a good swimmer yourself, you're going to drown. And I think that's the same with life. I think if you're not strong enough in yourself, you're not going to be able to help others. If you're not, and being on the road, if, you, if you're a weak person, you're going to struggle. Yes. If, you're weak, if you're not happy with your own company, you're going to struggle. So when we're in the van together, you're constantly in other people's presence. I tend to now turn off. I just switch off, put my headphones on, have a little bit of meditation, and I can deal with anything. Nothing phases me anymore. It's kind of like I'm at peace with myself, and that is the only way I survive on the road. I love it. I absolutely love it because I can sit there and just meditate. Yes. Well, I, yeah. Hours of it. <laughs> Hours of it on the road. Cause you're just looking at motorway otherwise, aren't you? And just getting frustrated. Or in the old days, drunk. That's yes. how we used to deal with it before. We used to, just used to get drunk. But now we're in our 50s and 60s for some of them. It's just you can't recover anymore. I, I quit drinking five years ago. I was like, I don't need this. And I found that um, meditation helps me much more than drinking did. Yeah. I know. Well, uh, you know, it's funny you say that because, you know, it's such a familiar story that I've had with, you know, <laughs> conversation where you just think, I just don't really fancy it anymore. I really yeah. don't. I can't, the struggle of trying to get up in the morning. <laughs> yeah. And I was, you know, to be honest, never 
that much of a drinker anyway, but it would just like sit there on the edge of the bed think, oh, really, I didn't even really want to do it and I feel a bit rubbish and I feel a bit depressed, so well, no. I think when most people in bands are concerned, it's it's the waiting. It's the, like, it's like uh, sit and wait, 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 hurry, hurry, hurry. That's the kind of uh, basis for being in a band because you arrive at gigs at three o'clock, which is loading time. So you're sitting around waiting, everything's getting loaded in, set up, then the sound check. And so you're in this dressing room with lots of booze and lots of food. So you're just sitting there killing time or you go out shopping like we do. <laughs> but then you go do your sound check. Then you've got booze again. Then you're eating with booze again. Then you're on stage with booze again. Then you come off stage, you want to come down. So there's booze again. So you end up most of your life is boozing. You get into bed at three, four in the morning. You're getting up early in the morning to get on the road again. The only way to deal with it is to start drinking again. And that becomes a little bit of a routine that becomes habit. Yes. And when, you know, that's why a lot of people end up alcoholics or with serious problems. And I realized I was developing a problem because I was drinking Jack Daniels copious amounts a lot every day at gigs and not even noticing it because it was like three o'clock in the afternoon till three o'clock the next morning so if you've drunk a whole bottle in that time it's 12 hours so you're not even drunk really you're just drinking out of habit so i got to the point where i thought i need to stop this and i i just decided one day i'm going to stop and i did just stopped and did you and did you find it sort of made you a sharper person both? absolutely oh you see what really happens <laughs> i think oh my god is this what really goes on <laughs> Yes. It's another world, but it did take getting used to. I must admit, going on stage for the first time sober was really weird. I noticed all my mistakes. Right. (laughs) I must always play this badly and I've just never noticed. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think it's very, um, very revealing, let's say. But um, I'm I'm completely used to it now. And Kim doesn't drink much now. I mean, she's not quit drinking completely, but. Gigs, we both go on sober and we don't tend to drink on tour now, which was used to be the other way around. Yes. I didn't drink at home much and I drunk constantly on tour. I was binge, binge drinker on tour. But now it's the other way around for Kim. She, she'll she have a drink at home, but she won't drink on tour because she can be sharper. And it, it's just easier to cope with, I think, because if you've got four people in a band and you're all drunk, things are said, you know, things happen. Well, I, I think with drinking, it's often people don't listen. Then no one's really listening. Everyone's kind of chirping, it, chip, chipping yeah. and chirping in, and and no, and there's very little kind of people actually understanding what someone else has said. So I think that's that's something that I found most revealing when you stop drinking with other people. Yeah. You just think, God, everyone's just talking over each other, and they're getting yeah. louder. They're just getting louder. <laughs> that's it. We call it the girls' school bubble because we our DBs go up and up and up. Oh my goodness, when we get together, it's deafening. It really is. It's deafening. I because I speak quite quietly sometimes because of all the meditation. And then I get with girls and it's like, ah, I suddenly got a sore throat. <laughs> We'd all say the same thing. We just talk so loudly. Yes. And that's not, not mainly the, the booze. It's just the excitement of being together and then the booze of wear as well. So we just tend not to drink because traveling, it's just hard work. When you when you get up in the morning, you've got a, you've been drinking till three or four in the morning. You're getting up at eight because you've got to be on the road at nine to pack again and get on the road it's hard work and and the older you get the harder it gets yeah and it's and it's also it's it's an amazing legacy the band has had you know because because even though you know it's um Yes, even though we're the same age, I sort of still think the 80s weren't that long ago. And then you think, no, God, that, yeah. was, that was literally 40 years. <laughs> so you've got, you know, an amazing body of work over those 40 years and an amazing amount of stories. So you must feel like it's become much more precious 
in a yeah. in a way that what you're doing is quite unique yeah. because I know I always remember I think it was Hank Wang Hank from the Shadows, God, yeah, and he was saying when he was still in his 70s or 60s, 70s, and he'd look across to the bass player and, think, and they would just smile going, I can't believe we're still doing this. We are <laughs> so lucky. And you must have those moments when you look at the, the band thinking, Absolutely. God, we've we've come through a lot of stuff, haven't we? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think I, because of meditation, maybe so much, I appreciate so much every day I get in music because I've lost a lot of people along the way. There's a lot of people I know have died. Yes. Very fortunate to still be doing this. I'm still fit and healthy enough to be still doing this. I still love doing this. I still enjoy it. And I still have the opportunity. And even more so now with Citeria as well, I've got a double opportunity. I mean, even before Citeria, I was in a band called Blitzkrieg as well, the punk band, because I wanted to play more gigs. So it's like I've always kept in a couple of bands so that I'm constantly playing, playing, playing and writing because that's what I love doing. So I definitely appreciate more what I have now. And I think this couple of months lockdown, I think hopefully it will give more people appreciation of music because we're not going to be going out to clubs anytime soon because the lockdown is going to keep us out of mass meetings and gatherings, I think. Yes, I think true. this is going to be the last industry. I don't see – we've been rebooking gigs. I mean, I should be on – you know, we should be doing gigs this month and I've had lots of gigs cancelled this month and next month we go to school and Siteria. We should be in Japan, in Russia, but there's going to be no opportunity to travel mm. and there's going to be – I think festivals are going to be the last thing to come back because that's obviously thousands of people. So yes. I think we'll appreciate it more. When we get back, I think the fans and the musicians are going to really appreciate it more. I hope that will be the case. I'm sure. I hope, hope it'll get more people out to gigs as well to support local bands. Yes, I, I'm, I'm sure that first year people could just be so relieved. I mean, just, I, I know it's a bit of a boring question. How is your hearing after all these decades in music? Oh. Yeah, I'd say pardon, but that's been done. Uh, yeah, my hearing is not great. I mean, I can hear, but my left ear, I have terrible tinnitus in my left ear. Yes. Which I kind of noticed when I first started doing meditation, I noticed it because that was the first time I really sat in quiet. I thought, oh, my God, my ears. My right ear is a little, but my left one is. I think that's the symbol, the crash symbol in the left ear. I'm going to blame Denise. <laughs> All those damn drummers. I know. But I think it's true. I think most musicians have got tinnitus. But yes, this yeah, is true. I mean, I can still hear, so I'm not going to complain. No. Well, look, thank you ever so much for your time. And I think we'll leave it there. You don't need me just babbling on for another two minutes saying goodbye. Or do you? I don't know. Anyway, massive thank you to Jackie Chambers from Girls' School. Give me the time for that interview. There you go. If you want to know any more information, probably Google Girls' School and various other sort of, I don't know, Jackie Chambers guitarists, and you'll get there. But anyway, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And all these have been archived, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. That's it, really. End of interest and chat. Right. Have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>